How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. This month I have particularly enjoyed the Grand Slam, a brute IPA brought to us by Black's Brewery. I love strong beers and at 6% this one definitely hit the spot. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award winning craft beer magazine Ferment and if that wasn't good enough they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of 8 beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers 52.com. Welcome to the finale of season two of Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. So this is the final episode of season two. Season two. I can't quite believe that we've been doing the show for two whole seasons. Thank you so much for convincing me to do this. It has been a lot of fun. We've made loads of new friends and I have loved this past year getting to know our listeners. And thank you to everybody who has listened to us over the past year and for all of the support that you guys have shown us um, yeah, with the podcast. Definitely. We're going to be back as Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. <laughs> and the cases we'll be covering won't just be from the UK, but from around the world. We'll be returning with season three at the beginning of September and it will sound a bit different for a little while as Bethan is going to be taking a little break. A break from you. Rude. (laughs) Um, But you will still get to hear from me at least once a fortnight. I'm hoping to release episodes weekly still Um, and Bethan has pre-recorded a few things to share as well in her absence. Thank you so much for your patience and your understanding. And I'll make sure that Mark continues our social media traditions of all the memes and the games and a million pet photos. No, no cat photos. I'm banning cats. Well, if he tries to, just share them on the page anyway, guys. Um, Thanks also to everybody who has supported the show on Patreon this year. Uh, We really, really appreciate the support that you guys have given us. If you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to then now is the right time to do it because Mm -hmm. we have a back catalogue of six bonus episodes on there. 
for your listening pleasure. For your ear pleasure. Just head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and there's three different tiers. I think you need to go for the five dollar tier um and up if you want access to the bonus content. So this week Bethan is closing the season with an incredibly harrowing case. Um and it's a tale of massacre. It's one of the worst massacres that this country has ever seen. What a lovely way to end the season. Yeah. Well I, done, Bethan. Yeah, I couldn't just head off on my so-called maternity leave without leaving you with something this awful. So the name of the town I'm going to be discussing this week is probably one that we all know. It's a town in the council area of Stirling, which is in central Scotland, and is on the banks of the River Allen. Our story this week is set in 1996. What were you doing in 1996? Um, me? Mm. Uh... I don't know, I was like 13, so you can probably guess. Hmm, disgusting. (laughs) I've channelled Adam at UK True Crime and I found some facts about the year to set the scene. Take that announced that they were splitting up, Dolly the Sheep was born, and Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones was also born. The first Ford KA was released. I I did have one of those for a time, yeah. Changing Rooms made its way onto the screens of the UK TVs. Brilliant show. And finally, the Spice Girls released their debut single, Wannabe. That is literally the only happy part of this episode. It's going to be a dark story. On Wednesday the 13th of March 1996, at about 8.15am, Thomas Hamilton was sighted scraping ice off his van outside his home. Hamilton was a 43-year-old former scoutmaster who had begun attracting the attention of the police recently due to his obsessions with young boys, but had actually had issues for over 20 years previously for the same things. The main mental health issues that he suffered with began when he learned at the age of 22 that he had grown up believing his mother Agnes was his sister. Shortly after his birth, his father had left Thomas's mother, Agnes, for another woman, So Agnes and Thomas moved in with Agnes's adopted parents, her aunt Catherine and Uncle Jim. They had adopted Agnes after her own mother gave birth to her out of wedlock, and everyone was keen to hide this, so they decided to adopt Thomas as well. So Catherine went to great lengths to advertise to the community that she'd fallen pregnant again and was having another child. So this was kind of to conceal this child, Thomas, from the stigma of having had a father that left the family. After learning the truth about his family, relations with his adoptive parents were strained and he moved out to his own house, but he still treated his mum like a loved sister. He phoned her every evening and visited her twice a week. He grew up, according to psychologists, with an issue about his identity and a need for control. He was ostracised at school, struggled to make friends at school and was often referred to as a loner. And later, as he tried to seek solace in the scouts, he was also rejected struggling with accusations that he was strange and was a paedophile. He had become a scout leader in 1973, aged 20, but he was asked to leave just the following year because of complaints about his behaviour at camp. So there had been two occasions where scouts had been forced to sleep with Hamilton in his van during hill-walking expeditions, and within months he was blacklisted by the Scout Association due to his suspicious moral intentions towards boys. Blacklisted? He should have been arrested. Yeah, but I don't think he'd actually done anything to them. But getting them to sleep in his tent and stuff. Sleep in his van. Van, yeah. ugh. So then he decided to turn to guns. So he amassed a huge collection of firearms and became a member of a rifle club. So Peter Aylward, a psychoanalyst, 
who appeared on the CBS show Murderers and Their Mothers, which was a show that analysed this case, amongst others, said his relationship with guns took quite a perverse turn. He used to talk to his guns as if they were children, and it's as if the guns replaced the children that he had tried to gather around him. In this way, he had complete and utter control of his guns and ammunition in a way that he never could with children. Thomas Hamilton tried many times unsuccessfully to get back into the Scouts organisation, and he had put his name forward to begin volunteering at Dunblane Primary School, but was turned down for this role. He began to run a youth club, but several complaints had been made about him to the police. So the complaints included reports that he had taken photographs of the boys semi-naked without parental consent. I think, not that I'm justifying it whatsoever, but I think they were maybe going swimming or something, so... So there was more to it than yeah. your classic paedophile He wasn't sneaking scenario. around taking pictures of them secretly... However, he didn't have the parental consent to take those photos. And it's also still a bit like, why have you taken yeah, photos? definitely. Like Rumours were never far from Thomas Hamilton, and he felt like he was being persecuted. He actually felt like the failure of his shop was down to people talking about him. He was known to be very strict. He ran his summer camps in a strange way, so he forced the boys to wear these matching black swimsuits. And he'd take pictures of them and then display the pictures in his house and show people that came to visit. That is weird. Very weird. People had complained about his bizarre sports training sessions where he made young lads play without shirts and the boy with the biggest chest would be promised he could be captain. Oh, that's horrible. Isn't that creepy? Complaints about the summer camps led to him being probed by child protection officers from three Scottish police forces, but despite extensive inquiries, there was never a prosecution. In the community, Hamilton was labelled a pervert a name that offended him to such an extent that he actually started a campaign of writing letters. He tried to petition the Queen and members of local government, but no one was willing to take his side. People who knew Hamilton described him as, rather poetically I must say, embittered by rejection. And also that kind of like petitioning the government and the Queen, it's almost like that sense of like grandiose, Mm -hmm. inflated ego, which is quite common with psychopaths. Definitely. Like, why are you writing to the Queen just because some people in your local... She's not going to give a fuck about you, pal. Yeah, that your local village think you're a pervert. In 1995, he renewed his firearms licence, and in September of that year, he bought a 9mm Browning pistol, and a few months later, a Smith & Weston. He is then thought to have started to plan the massacre. So Hamilton's mother apparently knew about his gun club and his boys club, but she never suspected her son could turn to murder. On the eve of the massacre, he visited her as normal, they had dinner, he then went and had a bath, and he gave no indication of the atrocity that he would carry out in the next few hours. After scraping the ice off his van, on the Monday of the 13th of March 1996, Hamilton drove about five miles north to the direction of the primary school that he had been turned down from as a volunteer. Dunblane Primary School. He was hell-bent on vengeance for what he believed was a vendetta against him, With him in the van, he was carrying two Browning HP pistols, two Smith & Weston Magnum revolvers, and 743 cartridges of ammunition. Thomas had calculated that he had enough bullets to kill every pupil and teacher in the school, and it is believed that he was planning to arrive during the school assembly when all the students and staff would be in the large gymnasium. But, in a twist of fate, roadworks held him up. Luckily. Luckily. He arrived on the school grounds at about 9.30, so later than he was hoping for, and he parked his van in the car park. 
He took a pair of pliers out of the van and cut the telephone cables for the nearby houses and then he returned to get the four handguns out of the van. He made his way into the school carrying his weapons, dressed in black combat trousers, a dark jacket, a woolly hat and ear defenders. And to me, this was kind of like one of the first, if not maybe the first, school massacre. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly that I'd ever come across in yeah. the whole world. And I'm sure they had happened, you know, particularly in America, mm -hmm. because we do hear of them a lot there because of the gun laws being quite different. But, um, and I know the law was changed following mm. this actually, but, um, but yeah, this was like the first one where you've seen somebody almost like in combat mode going into a school hell-bent yeah. on killing as many people as possible. And it's the school aspect that's really horrendous. I think that's what's so shocking with this. And and it's a primary school, it's not yeah. a high school. And also, he's not a student. Usually yeah, normally when you hear it's a student. It, yeah. yeah, and there's, a re there's something like that, there's a reason. Not that you can say it's a good reason, but at least they have a reason, they're being bullied or something. This guy... Yeah, he's just not been allowed to go volunteer there. Yeah, well, it's it's in his mind, it's revenge. Mm. So first, he fired two shots into the assembly hall at the stage and into the girls' toilets, and then he walked along a passageway past the dining room and made his way into the gymnasium. As he marched into the room, he was confronted by the PE teacher in charge of the lesson, Eileen Harold, and he began to shoot wildly at random. Eileen was shot in the arms and the chest before she stumbled into the open-plan store cupboard at the side of the gym. At this point, she took with her several injured children. There were also two other adults present. There was Gwen Mayer. She was the class's main teacher of the primary one class, and Mary Blake, who was a teaching assistant. They were both also shot at. Gwen was killed instantly, whilst Mary managed to flee with a number of children into a cupboard but she was shot in the head and in both of her legs. In the gymnasium, Hamilton fired 29 times at random. As well as killing Gwen, he also killed one child and he injured many others in the class as they fled towards the store cupboard. He then walked along the gymnasium, firing eight shots at one end of the room, and then he made his way back towards a group of incapacitated children who he fired at 16 times at point-blank range. A pupil who was walking along the west side of the gym building at the time heard loud bangs and screams and looked inside the gym, but when Hamilton saw him peering into the room, he shot at him. This pupil was luckily able to run away, but was injured by flying glass in the process. Whilst he stood there looking out, Hamilton fired another 24 shots in various directions. He also fired shots towards a window near to a fire exit at an adult who was walking across the playground. And then he fired four more shots in the same direction after he'd opened the fire exit door. After this, Hamilton left through a fire exit and fired another four shots towards the library cloakroom. These shots injured Grace Tweddle, another member of staff at the school, but luckily she survived. At the same time, close to the fire exit where Hamilton was standing, Catherine Gordon was teaching a class in a mobile classroom. She saw Hamilton firing shots and yelled for her class of students to get down on the floor. He fired nine times into this room, hitting books and equipment, and one bullet actually went through a chair that a child had been sitting in just seconds before. Stephen Hopper, aged 11, was in his classroom yards from the gym. He said to the papers afterwards, It was right next to my classroom. I looked over and saw the gunman. He seemed to come out of the gymnasium and was just firing at something. He was coming towards me, so I just dived under my desk where he turned and fired at us. 
The firing was very fast, like someone hitting a hammer quickly. Then there was a few seconds of a pause and he started again. It was pretty scary when he started firing at our classroom window because all the glass smashed in and I got hit by a piece. Can you imagine being 11 and this is something you've seen? It's well, it, I mean, it's literally going to traumatise you for yeah. your whole life. And you're, you're going to, you know, obviously lots of your school friends and mm-hmm. uh, like, I'm sure one teacher died, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's it's one of the worst things that could ever happen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, aside from perhaps your mom and dad dying yeah. at that age. It's literally the, the like only school other is thing such that, a big thing. Yeah, you feel safe there. You should, yeah. And Andy Murray, Tennis's mum, Judy Murray, spoke to Radio Times years later about the impact that this had had on her family. Because he went there to that school, he did. Her, both her sons. Andy and Jamie Murray were aged eight and ten years old, respectively, and were at the school at the time. Andy's class had been on the way to the gym when they heard all the noises and someone went ahead to investigate. This person then came back and told all the kids to go to the headmaster's study. And she told a reporter they were told to sit down below the windows and they were singing songs. The teachers and the dinner ladies did an amazing job containing all these children, feeding them and getting them out without them being aware of what had happened. I don't know how they managed it. Andy's brother Jamie had been in a prefab classroom when the shooting began and he told his mum that they thought someone was knocking on the roof with a hammer. She said that the kids could hear noise, but obviously they didn't know it was gunfire. I'm like, why would they expect that? Yeah, you're never going to naturally think that's what it was. No. So Hamilton then made his way back into the gym. When he got there, he dropped the pistol he was using, took out one of the revolvers, put the barrel into his mouth, pulled the trigger and killed himself. In front of other students as well? Yeah. God. I mean, obviously, like, it's a good thing that he killed himself Mm -hmm. and that he didn't carry on and kill any more children. But even just to, you know, this is obviously like a bad guy, but even to witness him kill himself must have been so traumatic. Mm Mm-hmm. So whilst this was all going on, assistant head teacher Agnes Olsen had heard screams coming from the gymnasium and saw the spent cartridges on the floor. So she rushed to alert the head teacher, Ronald Taylor. He had heard the loud bangs, but he assumed it was building work. So when she said this, he called the police, and this was at 9.41, saying that there was the possibility of a gunman in his school. He made his way to the gym and he saw what had happened. And at this point, he then ran back to the office and he got the deputy headmistress to call the emergency services again but this time for ambulances. This phone call was made at 9.43. So 9.41 he goes, calls, and so he's like on it straight yeah, away. Course. Reflecting after the massacre, the whole school realised that they had heard gunfire, and I imagine that those sounds will just never leave them. The entire event happened in just under four minutes. I'm really shocked at that. For some reason, I thought it was really, really prolonged. It was like mm-hmm. half an hour or something no. of him like systematically going from classroom to classroom. No. Yeah, I really, really thought yeah. it was... I can't believe so that. So he went through this gymnasium, marched out into the playground, started shooting at the prefabs and then... And it, it was almost like him. indiscriminate gunfire Absolutely. where it wasn't really targeted. It was just firing. There were so many kids there that he knew he was going to be able to kind of strike Mm -hmm. several of them. Yeah. So 32 people were injured, and alongside Gwen Mayer, the teacher, 16 small children were killed, 15 at the school and one on the way to hospital. The children were all aged just five years old, except for one child who was six. So the children were Victoria Clysdale, Emma Crozier, Melissa Curry, Charlotte Dunn, Kevin Hassel, Ross Irvine, David Kerr, Mari McBeath, Brett McKinnon, Abigail McLennan, 
Emily Morton, Sophie Lockwood-North, John Petrie, Joanna Ross, Hannah Scott and Megan Turner. And whilst this is an absolutely horrific crime, I was struck by the randomness of the fact that it was just roadworks that ended up saving hundreds and hundreds of lives. Well, not hundreds and hundreds. He had enough gunfire to go into but that gymnasium. But there were probably only a couple hundred kids at that school. 743 really? people he wanted to go in. Oh my God. Yeah, so he'd got enough bullets to go kill the whole school. Okay. Yeah. And that was his plan. His plan yeah. was to go in and just take out the and whole if, lot. And if he was firing just like willy-nilly almost, if it was uh, like an assembly situation mm-hmm. and he was doing that, he would have literally, yeah, he would have easily killed yeah. 10 times that many. And that's what I mean. Like it, It's horrific. That is 17 people dead. However, it could have been hundreds. Mm. As the police and ambulances began to arrive, Headmaster Ronald Taylor set about calming down the pupils who were understandably distraught he has been described by the police as a hero for the work he put in to protect the kids the first ambulance arrived at the school at 9 57 a.m and another medical team from dunblane health center arrived at 10 04 this included doctors and a nurse who were involved in the initial resuscitation of the injured there were also medical teams from the health centers in dune and calander who also arrived shortly after Also on the scene were medical teams from Stirling Hospital and the Falkirk and District Hospital too. Stirling Hospital's A&E department were warned of a major incident involving multiple casualties at 9.48 so that they could prep for the arrival of 12 children. The last of those 12 children arrived by 10 past 11. That night, the three of the 12 children in hospital were still on the critical list, so... Quite quickly, they've all really rallied in their... I don't know, because I'm thinking, like, you know, the fact that some of those children didn't arrive at the hospital until 10 past 11... But they would have to work on them, at the, I guess, if they're not stable enough to Yeah, move. that's true, yeah. So it's not just like it's taking an hour and a half to sort of get them and take them to hospital. No, so the first they ambulance yeah. got there within, like, 10 minutes. Yeah. And they've they've almost then got to get there and triage what is a chaotic mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Who is actually injured? Who's, um, who's, who's severely injured? Yeah. yeah. Who who is not talking or making a noise mm-hmm. and needs urgent attention? Yeah. yeah. Just that alone would have been hard. I think so, especially with them being children as well. Like yeah. children don't make a lot of sense in the best of times. And this is, I mean, like I might be wrong, but this, you know, Dunblane is is quite a small. Mm-hmm. place it's mm-hmm. got that community vibe so you know probably lots of people are on attendance at the scene from the hospitals would have known families who had yeah. children at that school they might have had relatives at that school absolutely jack Beatty, a senior consultant pediatrician who arrived with the medical team said it was the worst carnage he had witnessed in his 19 years as a doctor He is quoted as saying, we saw a large number of dead and injured children when we arrived in the gymnasium and they were distributed around the room in various positions, the dead with the injured. There were a number of teachers comforting the children who were still alive and there were ambulance staff who had arrived at the scene before us. The children were very quiet. They were in shock both because of their injuries but also the psychological shock. The news began to spread and frantic parents rushed to the school. They congregated at the school gates desperate for news and the children were brought out in school groups and passed to their parents to take home. Scenes captured by the news reporters show sobbing parents and children clutching each other in desperate embraces. Any parents who arrived whose child had died were taken to a private room away from the rest of the chaos. 
One of the governors at the school, Nora Doherty, talked about how she had relief that her daughters were okay, saying, I found out it was not my daughters. I felt relieved, and then I felt terribly guilty that I felt relieved. I remember as well, because I would have been sort of like 13 when it happened, as I Mm -hmm. said, but I remember seeing it on the news, and I remember seeing the parents caught on Mm -hmm. camera racing towards that school, and just that awful panic, like you can't really describe it Mm -hmm. until you see it, but that absolute sheer terror on their faces running to see whether their children were dead or alive. And this is before social media, and like you said, it goes to show how small of a place this is, because the word just went round, like people were rushing into shops or into places of work and just saying to people, have you heard, do you have anyone at the school? A father outside the school gates reportedly shouted out, I don't know if my girls are alive or dead. What kind of maniac does this? They are just babies in there. And Judy Murray, who we heard about earlier, first heard about the shooting while she was at work in the family's toy shop, at which point she just picked up her car keys and ran. A quote from her was, I was just driving there thinking I might not see my children again. There were too many cars on the road. Everyone was trying to get there. I got angry, shouting, get out of the way. About a quarter of a mile away, I just got out of the car and ran. She arrived at the school gates, which were closed, to join a group of other parents. People weren't frantic. They were more shocked and quiet. This was before mobile phones and nobody knew anything. And at Janet Aitken, mother of an 11-year-old pupil, said... I have my son, but many don't. When I saw Campbell, I just wanted to weep. So many parents aren't having a reunion with their children. So Judy Murray said that she can't really remember the moment when she saw her sons again, but on the drive home, she felt it's important to stop the car and tell her young sons what had happened. She said it was an impossible thing to try and explain to children, and she was kind of glad that they were too young to understand sort of the enormity of it all. I don't know, though. I think... uh... You know, the ages they were, what were they, like, nine Seven and, and eight, seven yeah. And eight. But I just think they would have understood. They'd have understood in They wouldn't have been able lot. to vocalise what had happened, yeah. potentially, but they would have They would have got it. Mm-hmm. And chillingly, as we see time and time again with this case, both of her sons had known Hamilton as children. Oh. They'd been to the boys' clubs that he ran locally at the high school, and Judy Murray had even given him lifts from the boys' club to the station. She said he was a bit of an odd bod, Never would have thought he was actually dangerous. And if you don't know, you don't know. So she's yeah. just done a kind thing. And this is what we found, like what I found quite a lot with this case, is it is a small place and everyone knows everyone. And while some people said he was a weirdo, some people called him a pervert, lots of other parents some let their children him, yeah. go to the and school. And some would have just given him the benefit of the doubt. And this was in 1996 before paedophiles existed. Which I've said well, before, haven't I? But, but, but you know what I mean, though? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it wasn't as like uh, prolific as it is now, and it wasn't as talked about as much. And I, You would just be described as an odd bod, yeah. when really they were actually paedophile. And I think he's hearing all these rumours, because he's hearing it said about himself. He thinks this is the reason his business is failing. You didn't have social media where you could name and shame and put your... All these vigilante all these, yeah. groups or whatever, exactly. yeah. Exactly, so... A lot of the parents probably didn't hear this. He was probably paranoid as fuck hearing all these things about himself. I always wondered with Andy Murray, and I know his brother's quite successful as Mm. well, um, but I always wondered if his success could be attributed to this traumatic event that happened in childhood. Maybe Judy really thought, this is like a second chance, Mm -hmm. I could have lost you, and she kind of let them, uh, you know, follow their dreams. I don't know. Possibly. It did remind me a little bit about um, when I mentioned about Stephen Gerrard, who's 
cousin yeah, had died in, in Hillsborough. Hillsborough. And, that, and he, that propelled him on yeah. to become a professional footballer. He wanted to do it in his memory. Yeah. Isabel Wilson is the mother of Mari, whose name I read out earlier, one of the children that died that day. And the first thing that Miss Wilson saw when she returned home after finding out that her daughter Mari was dead were her school shoes. She just picked them up and threw them in the bin, saying that she couldn't bear to look at those shoes at the bottom of the stairs, knowing that the little girl whose feet used to fill them would never return to wear them again. Isabel's husband had died a few months previously, so she was now left with just her three-month-old daughter. She'd first heard something had happened at the school when her friend Barbara called her to say, there's news reports of a gunman on the loose in Dumbling Primary School, so off she made her way there. She wasn't really panicking because she thought the chances of her daughter being involved were quite slim, but when a senior officer came forward to say they only wanted to talk to parents with kids in Gwen Mayer's class, Isabel began to panic. She went with the other parents to a nearby home where they were taken to, and then they were taken back into the school to wait in the staff room. She said it was torture. As the parents were taken off in pairs or one by one, she managed to keep her husband's best friend with her for support, and then a police officer and a social worker broke the news to her. And on the morning of the 13th of March, Amy Hutchinson had been arguing with her mum about her footwear. She wanted to wear her new kickers, but her mum was telling her to wear wellies because it was due to rain. Amy was in Gwen's class and she remembers, we were skipping around. I don't really remember the pain of being shot and I don't really remember the noises. I don't remember sounds. I just remember that my leg turned to jelly and I fell on the floor. So she managed to hide in the cupboard and continues, as I called in, I was very aware of the amount of blood everywhere, the crying and the pain that people were in. I was crying for my mum and the adults in the PE cupboard were trying to keep us quiet because they didn't know if he was still in the gym hall or where he was going next. Amy and the other survivors were treated for their wounds at Stirling Royal Infirmary and Amy was released from hospital six weeks later. She was actually the last of the wounded children to return to school. So Headmaster Ronald Taylor spoke to the press years later about his experience. He saw his pupils lying in pools of blood and Hamilton, who had shot himself, twitching on the floor. Oh, that's quite disturbing as well. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like, we don't really care what happens to him, but that bothers me that he didn't die straight away. Mm -hmm. He said, it was unimaginably horrible to see children dying in front of you. I felt enormous guilt, more than survivor's guilt. There was this incredible silence, the air was thick with smoke, and there was a group of children standing. The first thing we were able to do was to get them out of there. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. What's smoke? Where's that come from? I guess from the gunshots, maybe. Oh, God, yeah. 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 He spent a lot of time helping the police with the bodies of the children before he then sat down to write an account of what he'd seen that day for the detectives. Apparently, he's never been able to read this description again or look at any newspaper clippings of the events. I'm not surprised. He's mm-hmm. literally had to identify the mutilated yeah. bodies of his, several his, five-year-old children yeah. that were actually in his care. Mm-hmm. He said, there is no way we could have adequately prepared for what happened, no. but I felt I should have been able to do more and that guilt lives with me. See, that's awful because I know yeah. I'm saying they're in his care, but how could they ever have foreseen something like yeah. that? This could have happened at any school uh, in 1996 in and this I, country. Yeah, and no wonder he's been called a hero by yeah. police and everybody. Amy Adam was just five years old when Thomas Hamilton attacked her class in the gymnasium and was one of the most seriously injured but luckily survived. She was shot twice in the right buttock and the right thigh and she blacked out in the gym cupboard where her teacher Eileen Harold had told her to hide. 
She had surgery to remove a bullet from her thigh. During the operation, surgeons found a second bullet which had entered near her groin and it had lodged at the bottom of her back. At age 25, she appeared on the TV show Good Morning Britain to talk about her experiences. She said that this had actually shaped her adult life and it had given her the push to work in mental health nursing because, quote, I feel bad for him, Hamilton, that his life was so terrible that he had to ruin other people's lives. I hate him, but he's gone and he can't ruin anybody else's life. I just can't let something like that beat me because if I did, I wouldn't be the person I am now. It's definitely one of the reasons I did choose to do it, mental health nursing. And I want to know why people do these things and what they were thinking. She also explained to the presenters that she has no movement in her right leg from the knee down, no feeling in it, and the bullet in her spine damaged her sciatic nerve and her foot hasn't grown since the accident, so it's actually smaller than the other one. She said in the tearful interview, I just feel like it's part of my life, so it feels like normality to me. I suppose it's quite a surreal thing to have happen to you. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No shit. So the town was racked with grief as the reports began to make their way out into the public. The details, as I'm sure you would expect, were rather vague because the eyewitnesses were mostly children and really traumatised, so it's kind of hard to know what actually happened. And people began to try and make sense of what had happened, but this was just impossible. And then the killer's name was released and the public were filled with extra horror because this man had been living amongst them. Michael Forsyth, the Scottish secretary, flew to Scotland as soon as the news broke. I cannot find the words to express what has happened here today, he said, after being taken to the scene. He was joined by the shadow Scottish secretary, George Robertson, who lived in Dunblane. Mr Robertson, whose children attended Dunblane Primary School, described the murders as an act of unspeakable brutality and woe. And the Queen said that she was deeply shocked by the appalling news from Dunblane. She said, I am asking you to pass my deepest and most heartfelt sympathy to the families of all those who were killed or injured and to the injured themselves. I am sure that I share in the grief and the horror of the whole country. And the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition publicly also registered their shock and distress at the worst multiple murder that the country had seen. John Major said, They are perhaps the generation that has more to look forward to in optimism and hope than any before. And suddenly this appalling act snuffs out that opportunity. So police in Scotland opened a fatal accident inquiry, which is a formality for any unnatural death. They confirmed that the gunman had held appropriate firearm certificates. And on the 19th of March 1996, just six days after the massacre, Thomas Hamilton's body was cremated. So according to a police spokesman, this service was conducted far away from Dunblane. His autopsy has been sealed for a 100 years, along with some of the autopsy information available about the child victims, and that's just to kind of avoid mm. distressing the relatives and the yeah. survivors. because quite often that is like public document, isn't it? Yeah. So um, those children in particular would have had really horrific injuries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously for the parents or anyone to come across and read that, yeah. it would be really disturbing. I think a 100 years is a good amount of time yeah. to enough yeah because if i think to like 100 years ago now like the titanic you know mm-hmm. obviously that's totally different it wasn't murder but uh you know we kind of talk about it in a different way because yeah. it doesn't really feel real because it's, it's so not long your ago family yeah directly, it's so yeah. far you know removed yeah mm-hmm. so we agree we're agreed at 100 years i think so <laughs> good two days after the shooting a vigil and prayer session was held at dumbling cathedral 
And then on the Sunday after the shooting, there was also a TV broadcast of the morning church service from Dumbling Cathedral on the BBC. And they also showed a live broadcast of the memorial service on the 9th of October, which was conducted at the cathedral. More than 600 people attended this, including Prince Charles, who was representing the royal family, television presenter Lorraine Kelly. So I knew that she covered did you? it. Yeah, I thought you would. Of course I did. She was actually a guest speaker at the service Aww. because she'd actually befriended some of the victims' families while she was reporting yeah. on this for GMTV. The fatal accident inquiry resulted in the Cullen reports, which was a report written by Lord Cullen. He had been instrumental in presenting three reports on major tragedies. This report sought to answer two main questions, which were, what were the circumstances leading up to and surrounding the shootings at Dunblane Primary School on the 13th of March? And what should he recommend with a view to safeguarding the public against the misuse of firearms and the other sort of dangers that the investigation would bring to light? So in the report, he looked at the events of the fateful morning. He also looked at the years leading to Thomas Hamilton's actions. He did an in-depth look at the final months of his life, the reasons behind why he did what he did. So this report was major. I think it's quite interesting, though. I feel like it would be a really interesting job mm, to almost have. Like, and almost like would read like a book. It really does. And you can read it, and it's really, really interesting. So, the report paints kind of a picture of a deeply disturbed individual who was not mentally ill, but had a paranoid personality with a desire to control others. This assessment was made based on evidence from a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and Lord Cullen also presented that Thomas Hamilton had planned this in great detail. The report also looked at how Thomas Hamilton had been in possession of the guns that he'd used. So, whilst they were legally held... Lord Cullen was not happy with the reasons that were given about why he had so much firepower. He was also not happy that a detective had challenged in 1991 whether it was right for Hamilton to have the guns following one of the complaints made against him, but this was not followed up on. He ruled that there should have been further investigations made into Hamilton, and he did make some assumptions on what could have happened if this was done. And the next part of the report looked at gun control... Gun control... The next part of the report looked at gun control, stating that there are two areas to support the control of weapons. So the first is regulation around the sale and ownership of guns. The second was an option of banning guns in a blanket ruling. So due to a blanket kind of banning of guns in general would mean that there'd kind of be no certification around guns. So he said that he could not recommend this as an answer. Instead, he did look at some recommendations around specifically the certification of guns He said there is a need to strengthen the support which is given to those who carry out inquiries and to extend the powers available to police officers and civilian licensing and inquiry officers. I also endorse the steps which are being taken to enable police forces to hold and exchange information on computers as to the individuals who hold firearm certificates and those whose firearm applications have been revoked or refused. So he said there needs to be more done to ensure that someone doesn't have a gun for no good reason. He stated that someone who held a firearm certificate should be a member of at least one gun club and the mental fitness of the person holding the certificate should be considered. He presented the need for two references for anyone who wanted to join a gun club and to get a licence. He also said it wouldn't really be practical to get GPs to sign off on the person's mental health but also that it wouldn't really be practical to have psychological testing carried out. I I do get that. 
Yeah, like, how are you going to have the time to do that when you also have to help people? The report recommended changes in school security and some changes for vetting of people who worked with children under the age of 18. He noted that it wasn't really good enough to leave it up to individual clubs or groups to carry out their own checks because then they could kind of adopt whatever practice they wanted and the parents aren't really always in the best position to make an adequate inquiry into the way that the clubs or the groups run. And also it might be like, oh, that's kind of like little Tommy's dad. So of course he can take over as a scout leader and we don't need to do any checks because, you know, he's one of the boy's dad, but he could still be a paedophile. And... If you've got a gun club that's a small gun club, have they got the resources and the money behind them to do the checks and that, is, I that always, a big rifle club would have? I always think it's a bit of like an old boys network, some of yeah. these gun clubs. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the way that you accepted into them. It's not what you know or mm-hmm. what you have or what experience you have. It's who you know. Yeah. He said that the sort of organisations really varied from different areas of the country. So his ruling was as follows. There should be a system for the accreditation to a national body of clubs and groups voluntarily attended by children and young persons under the age of 16 for their recreation, education or development, the main purpose of which would be to ensure that there are adequate checks on the suitability of the leaders and workers who have substantial unsupervised access to them. There were a lot of recommendations made around the need for restrictions on gun ownership, so the Home Affairs Select Committee did agree with a lot of this. They stated that a handgun ban was not appropriate, but cautious compromises kind of could come into play. So storing firearms in secure armories or police stations makes sense, but you can't just ban them completely. Mm. The government of John Major introduced the Firearms Amendment Act 1997, and this banned all cartridge ammunition handguns, with the exception of .22 calibre single-shot weapons, in England, Scotland and Wales. And in following the 1997 general election, the Labour government of Tony Blair introduced a firearms amendment number two, which banned the remaining .22 cartridge handguns as well. So this left muzzle loading and historic handguns as legal, as well as sporting guns, which makes a lot of sense really because you you kind of have those ones for a reason. Yeah, and some of those are like almost decorative. Yeah. So that they might have them on walls in stately homes and stuff. Yeah. So a small group known as the Gun Control Network was founded in the aftermath of the shooting and it was supported by some of the parents of the victims of Dunblane and also Hungerford. There was some criticism of the police's handling of Thomas Hamilton due to their previous dealings with him and the complaints from 1991. Hamilton had been reported for consideration of 10 charges, including assault, obstructing police and contravening Children and Young Persons Act of 1937, but nothing further was taken about this. So after the Dunblane massacre, handgun control became a really controversial topic that people discussed frequently, and it was a very political topic as well, as we're sort of finding now with America and... Mm. It's quite interesting because the UK's way of dealing with it was, I guess because we're such a smaller nation, it is a lot easier to make a rule and that was the law. The law up until this point had been influenced by an August 1987 massacre in Hungerford during which 16 people were killed. After that incident, Parliament had passed the Firearms Amendment Act, which banned the ownership of semi-automatic and pump-action rifles. 
Weapons that fire explosive ammunition, short shotguns with magazines, and elevated pump action and self-loading rifles. So, I guess to take away some of the dangers that they could be facing. Handgun ownership was increasing in the 1990s, and sports shooting, which was the only legitimate reason for owning a handgun, was a fast-growing sport. Yet even members of this elite country sports lobby were troubled by the newcomers who were keen on combat-style shooting. This and Hungerford changed the face of gun ownership in England and the government banned higher-calibre handguns in 1997 and then later that year additional types of guns were added. There was also an amnesty in the UK and by March 1999 the National Audit Office reported to Parliament that 165,353 licensed handguns and 700 tonnes of ammunition had been surrendered. Wow. This involved an estimated compensation cost of £95 million. Well, so they were literally like giving them money for the guns yeah. and the ammunition, yeah. I think after you know, after the Hungerford massacre and then the Dunblane massacre, mm-hmm. it what guns did become real kind of frowned upon yeah. in this country. So I'm surprised that, you know, certainly after the Hungerford Massacre and for a short while after the Dunblane Massacre that uh, shooting as a sport mm-hmm. became more popular yeah. because I remember it was just like the guns were taboo. I think that's I the thought. thing. I think even after Hungerford, people still wanted to take part in shooting, but after Dunblane it was, do you know mm. what, unless you've got a valid reason to use that, like you're a farmer or you have yeah, of course, something yeah. like that, people just... And it's very general because obviously a lot of people were still against it and still said, why should we all be punished for the actions of one person? And it was quite strange as well because on the surface it would seem like this would stop the levels of gun crime. It actually opened up the criminal world using BB guns, air rifles and realistic imitation weapons. Which can actually then be adapted and modified mm-hmm. to work as proper guns. Yeah. Or fire blanks or or something, but to still scare people. Yeah, which we saw in last week's episode. I was going to say last week's episode, until the guy realised it was firing blanks, he was terrified and yeah. thought he was being fired yeah. at. There was a 105% increase in recorded handgun crime, which occurred between 1998 and 2003. But from what I've kind of read, it doesn't really specifically link. So there was already a demand for these so-called junk guns in Britain's kind of emerging gang cultures where firearm carrying was kind of normal and natural. And, and it cool. Was, it was yeah. seen as cool. But they didn't want to also use those guns, which they perhaps would have to get illegally. So they were using these fake guns. And researchers found out that a large proportion of armed robberies carried out by offenders were actually using non-functioning firearms or imitation ones. A lot of people do like to say that Dunblane happened and then the UK didn't have any more school shootings. Which is completely factually correct, but gun violence and indeed massacres just didn't stop. And it is true, unlike in America, we don't have this horrific almost weekly. I mean, recently it's there was a few days where it was yeah, daily. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't want to sort of get all um, like coming down on America yeah. because it's so easy in this country to oh, do it's it. It's very different. And I, I'd be really interested from our American listeners' perspective mm-hmm. whether what we feel 
in terms of their gun culture is actually correct mm-hmm. and factual because we we think you know I'm using the royal we but we kind of think it's a bit out of control there and it, like yeah. you just said it seems like there's a, a, a kind of massacre at a school every week I'd be really interested mm-hmm. to see because I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually like do you know what that really isn't the case and yes you hear about yeah. them and they do happen more frequently than anywhere else but actually it's not as horrific as people's perception yeah I think it's really know. interesting because Quite recently, there were a number of different things that had happened with gun violence yeah. across a number of days. And sort of talking to certain people on social media or Facebook and stuff, it is interesting to see. Yeah, it'd be really good to hear from some mm. of our other listeners. Like, what do you feel? Do you feel like that is the case in America? Because I don't want to offend anyone and say like, oh, God, mm-hmm. you know, America's like fucking terrible for gun crime. No, I, I don't really know the stats. Not, and because it could just be my perception, but I, I feel like it is. Mm, I, I don't know. I think I disagree with you because I think they will. I feel like our listeners will say, actually, it breaks their hearts because they hear it so could often. Could be. Yeah, yeah. I think, I you're right. you I think could, it'd be really interesting be to know what... You could be absolutely right. I yeah. just don't know. And... We haven't had a school shooting since Dunblane. That is a I fact. mean, that does say a lot, though. Yeah. yeah. But the police still have to adapt to new threats. And we still have gun violence. On the 2nd of June 2010, 52-year-old Derek Bird shot and killed 12 people and injured 11 more during an hours-long shooting spree in Cumbria before he killed himself. Yeah, nearly covered that case in Season 1. Yeah, we looked at the case of Royal Moat in Season 1 yeah, as well. Yeah, we did cover that. And following the attacks in Paris in 2015, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary published a hard-hitting report recommending further important changes to British firearms licensing, for example, requiring better information sharing between police and mental health teams and a more rigorous vetting of firearm license applicants. So we're still seeing that in the UK, it hasn't gone away. I also wonder if knife crime has... As gun mm-hmm. crime has gone down, knife crime has Absolutely. gone up. You and know, knife have, crime is a huge acid problem. Attacks now in yeah. this country, which is just horrific. And we do have a lot of terrorist attacks, actually. Yeah. So, whilst it is very easy to say we had Dunblane, it happened once, and it hasn't happened again, which is completely factually mm. true, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It no. just means that perhaps people, people are using are doing, different methods. Yeah. People are using lorries or vans. Oh my God, or horrendous. Whatever, yeah. yeah. So, there we go. Um, not a nice case to end the season on, but then I don't think it would have been possible to end on anything that was going to cheer us up at all. No. Um, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode and listening to the final episode of season two and for joining us throughout our year of being Seeing Red, a UK True Crime podcast. We have had far too many people to thank for their help over the past kind of year. There's like so many, it would just be a whole episode of its own, but I did want to do a few little shout outs. Oh, it's outs. like a bloody Oscar speech. Oh, why can't we milk it? <laughs> um, see, I can't say that and then say all this, uh, which Bethan has kindly scripted for me, actually, <laughs> but I totally agree. So um, thanks to Adam at the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast and also to Paul, uh, the true crime enthusiast. Um, we are sorry, Paul and Adam, that we haven't got around to planning our collaboration Oops, episodes. We are just, yeah, it is going to happen. And when, when you do like a full-time job like we each do, mm. where you're working with kind of like commuting 50 hours a week, it's really hard oh God, to fit this in. story, Mark. No, I, don't, I really don't mean to. But it's like, it is, yeah. this is a lot of work. There's, mm-hmm. there's been so many sacrifices that we've had to make, which, you know, we're totally happy to do because we really, really enjoy doing it. Mm. It's worth we do, it, it totally is. It's we wouldn't so do it otherwise.
we want to say thank you to Cater Ignorance with Bliss podcast, so the guys at Twisted Britain, Andy at the No Remorse podcast. Who I'm really hoping to collaborate with in season three. I hope three. he comes back, because obviously he's put it on hiatus, yeah. I think. Massive thank you to everyone who joins in and writes to us on social media. We love chatting to you and sort of sharing all those memes and pictures. And and we are also so incredibly grateful to all of our Patreon supporters. Yes. Your financial support has helped us improve the equipment that we use. Um, and it's kept us producing episodes each week. And I think it also does keep us motivated mm. to, uh, to continue. And we will have some more bonus content yep. going on Patreon uh, in the next kind of three the months. August, yeah. We've got August bonus Patreon episodes ready and stuff yeah. like that it is cheesy but i wanted to add a little thank you to mark cringe. it is Fuck so off, cringe Pepper. and i wrote this and now i'm I don't reading want to it thank you without mark badgering me for months i wouldn't have even entertained the thought of starting seeing red and i didn't even imagine for a second that it would be as successful as it's become i've loved this past oh, year that's really nice to and hear. i feel like we've grown as a partnership and yeah, maybe it's like have. baby hormones but I can't imagine anyone better to co-host with. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, no, that's really sweet. I feel the same. And I think I think we always had that really good chemistry because we'd known each other um, for probably about six years when we started mm, doing the show. Yeah. And we'd work, we worked together. That's how we know each other. But we got on really well and we'd have a laugh and we kind of knew each other's boundaries. And I think that has been really important you know, I think the that's show. the thing that people say quite often is like, I can make you just stop when you're going to go a bit off yeah, the rails. Yeah, that's true though. And we, we don't really take offence at what the other says to the other. So, no. um, so I think, you know, like that, that has definitely, definitely helped us. And I think our confidence has definitely grown. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't bear to bring myself to listen back to some of the earlier episodes. Oh my God. And I was really tempted to take them off. No, I'm glad um, you didn't because I think it yeah, just Bethan shows was like, the don't journey. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we do still get positive feedback. People are absolutely like, yeah, mm. they're a bit shit, but <laughs> you know, recorded on a potato. Yeah. That was it. I love that. Yeah. Which it pretty much was. Um, but yeah, we, we do, uh, you know, we love that, that feedback when people are kind of saying they've been on that journey with us and they can see the improvement. So, uh, you, you know, we are going to be sticking around. Round. We'll take a three-week break now, mm-hmm. um, but we will be back uh, from, I think, three. the 6th of September. Ooh. Well, don't ask me. I'm I don't not, know. Yeah, I'm Bethan's not nothing anything. to do with it for a couple of months. So Yeah, well, uh, I'll try and still be something. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, so thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And if you do decide to support us on Patreon, um, you will get your thank yous when we start Season 3. Thank you very much, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.